Welcome to episode 132 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined once again by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. We've been doing so many episodes, it feels like these are really high numbers. These are. Actually, it, and I was thinking about it today because I uploaded episode number eight of the WTA Insider podcast, and I was like, it's just eight. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you gotta save with the single digits, though. I feel like... <sighs> I feel like you guys know what you're doing there on a level that we were nowhere near of episode. If you can listen to our single digit episodes, I feel like <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't know how they hold up. I'm sure some people have listened recently-ish, but I don't know. I wouldn't, certainly wouldn't point people to those like, hey, go listen to this. I'd sort of hide them through clicking on lots of next page over and over again. Yeah, no, I, yeah, it, it would be kind of scary to go back and listen to like episode one of uh of ncr i don't know that's a we're now we're now scrapbook i'm not able to do this yeah exactly that's that's a scrapbook entry that uh has yellowed and faded i think think and and it's time to move on one i'm actually i think it was pretty decent if i remember correctly we thought about one for a while before we did one so one probably is not our worst but uh anyhow 132 will hopefully be awesome we'll wrap up the end of the regular season of the tours the world tour finals in london Won by guess who? Novak Djokovic won a tennis tournament again. And then uh, we'll look forward. We'll wrap up some ATP loose ends and look forward to Davis Cup stuff and other shenanigans and take time to think of what we're thankful for in this uh, Thanksgiving week fast approaching. It's the holidays signal the end of the, the tennis year. Finally. Finally. So you ready to uh, ready to stick a fork in this turkey? Gobble, gobble. All right. Novak Djokovic won the World Tour Finals in London, beating Roger Federer in the final in straight sets after losing to Federer in round robin. Third loss to Federer this year, but Novak Djokovic won all their matches when it mattered. He won against Federer in the finals of Wimbledon and the U.S. Open and the World Tour Finals, as well as Masters Finals in Indian Wells and Rome. Did lose to him in the Cincinnati final, which was a match Novak probably wanted with the you know career Masters situation there but overall Novak Djokovic ends this year Courtney I have to think very very happy with himself and justifiably couldn't obviously with the one obvious French Open gap couldn't have hoped for much more the rest of the year no without a doubt I mean I I think that it was undoubtedly an incredible year It's it's a season that will go down as one of the best seasons in tennis history which is saying something considering this this is the same player who what was it 2011 yeah uh had that epic run also and uh put forth what many believe is is at least at the time you know there was the discussion of oh Novak's 2011 versus Rogers 2006 is that right? Seven, six, and seven. Six and seven. And five, actually. Yeah, five, six, and seven. Yeah. Um, you know, which is a a fun debate to have. Weirdly, I don't see that there's even an argument that uh those Roger seasons were better than what Novak has done both in eleven and in uh fifteen, simply because of the level of the opposition uh, these days compared to to Federer back in those days, but people are more than yeah. free to disagree but i i just i don't see it i think that 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 this is 
these two seasons that Novak put together were absolutely mind-boggling. No, I think that's right. And I think that 2015 for Novak is definitely better than 2011. Uh, 2011 was very front-loaded, obviously. He was undefeated all the way through the French Open semifinals, which was a really, really captivating thing. It was really good for men's tennis. It was a big storyline people bought into uh, that was great for the sport. But the post-US Open part of his season was actually pretty ugly in 2011. I don't think he made it out of group, if I remember correctly, in London. Um, and he picked up a couple of other bad losses there and was really running out of gas. This time, he just like never looked less than 100% at any point during the year. Really. I mean, like he was even when he lost his matches uh, a couple of times to Federer uh, and he lost to Murray in the Canada final, lost to Vavrinka in the French Open final. Uh, and then one early loss to Karlovich in the first week of the year. Uh, in Doha, which is, you know, Karlovich is Karlovich, and he takes the match out of your hands. But Novak just never looked, like, depleted. That's what really shocks, really sticks out to me this year, is that he just looked to have a full tank. And if the schedule if was two months longer, Novak, I think, would have been fine. Yeah. It's crazy with how much he played. He played 90 matches, went 83 and 7, and looks ready for more. Yeah. Which is scary for the field. Very scary for the field because I think I've said it before on this podcast that as great as Novak was playing, I never felt like he was redlining. Uh-uh. He it, it really felt like his 2015 was he was in full control. Uh, there was no recklessness about it. There was no oh well he's just closing his eyes and hitting the ball as hard as he can and it just happened to be for 11 months that the ball was hitting the lines. You know, like he just seems to have really taken the game to a different level this year in terms of his ability to match offense and defense, uh, his counter punching, his ability to just hit with incredible depth and not give offensive minded players much of a look um, and shrinking the court with his legs and with his uh, hands, all of it. It was an absolute clinic over the course of, of 11 months and you know, the the title at the, the World Tour Finals was definitely the punctuation mark on it, especially beating Roger Federer, avenging the loss that he took in group play um, and reminding us all that, yes, Novak Djokovic may take a loss here or there. And obviously the, the loss in the French Open final is probably the one that that uh, was the most disappointing and the, and the most, uh, no doubt, you know, it, it will last longer, the sourness of, of that day. But outside of that, you know, when he, you look at his matches against Roger, yes, obviously a, a great season for Roger Federer. I mean, it, it, we can't say that it wasn't. But when it mattered, Novak Djokovic was better. And I was actually very surprised by a lot of the, the quotes coming out of London from Roger, where it really does seem that Novak is like firmly in his head of mm. uh, Roger kind of conceding that he's second best. And Obviously, the numbers bear that out, but Roger is not one to always necessarily think that, um, regardless of results and uh, and head-to-heads and, and track records and all that sort of stuff. So I think Novak Djokovic definitely just took it to a different place this year. I mean, that's the thing with their matches, is that Novak managed to get the best of Roger when it counted. Like, if, if Novak, with the exception of the weird Cincinnati desire for him to complete that set if Novak could handpick which matches if he only got to win five of the eight against Fed or whatever he would have picked the five he won yeah and given no and given Roger the rest of the scraps 
Um, Roger won the Dubai final, Cincinnati final, and a London round robin match. Um, yeah, that's he just is in his head winning the best matches when it counts most, and that's again super super impressive. And Djokovic's year, corner, we have some numbers. I'm not sure we're not usually numbersy, but like his numbers are so good, incredible. They're so good. He was 83 and seven on the year. Um, which which is up there with the best there. It's not like the most sparkling ever, but it's really good. And more importantly, I think in that is he had 31 wins against the top 10 in there. Like he wasn't doing what in fairness, Serena did for most of the year, which was not playing the top players. Novak was faced with faced with these top guys again and again and again, Federer constantly Murray quite a few times. And all he took down in the semis of London and also at the French open, which was a big hurdle to take down Nadal at the French Open. Even if he didn't win that tournament, that was still, I think people will forget what a big moment that was, that match, that quarterfinal, when Novak was so emphatic over Rafa. Um, yeah, he did it the hard way, and he did did it really, really well. More stats do you have, Courtney? I have a few. Um, you know, I, I think one of the, obviously we can't use it as a clean stat simply because prize money has obviously changed and escalated, especially within the last like five years. And it changes every year. And it changes every year. So it's not a static metric, but uh, here's a a stat from at no, at Novak Joker fans. So a you know, stats aren't biased. They are numbers, but pointing out certain stats can be biased, but this I thought was, was really interesting. Um, Murray Feder and Vavrinka. Their total prize money combined this year was nine million thirty-four thousand eight hundred sixty-three, short of Novak Djokovic's twenty-one point six four million dollars. I mean, combined. Combined. That's uh, nine that's, million short. That is a lot short. That's a lot of money. That's a be, lot I'd of be, money. I'd be curious to see how far you go down. Like how many more people you have to get to in the rankings to add up to that nine million. Yeah. No, it's true. Uh, it's it's just. It's, I mean, you know, he didn't play, obviously, a heavy schedule, which is something that Novak Djokovic hasn't been doing uh, since he's kind of made this ascension to be effectively, you know, a number one or number right. two player. He's really limited his schedule, which I think is, is so key to allowing him to do what he's done. But, uh, you know, 15 straight finals, six Masters titles this year, it's, 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 it's just mind-boggling what he was able to do. And, and the... I think the thing that really stands out to me when it comes to Novak is that I don't necessarily remember those stats. Like it doesn't occur to me that he made 15 straight finals. It doesn't occur to me even that he won three of four major titles or, you know, another world tour finals or whatever. For me, it was the memory of Novak in 2015 was just watching him play and the level and the way that he played tennis this year was just, I mean, my jaw was left agape most of the time. You know, I mean, he, he'd be playing these, you know, 30, 35, 40 shot rallies and winning these rallies and looking bored. Like he didn't even look out of breath, you know, and you contrast that mm-hmm. to the Novak of, 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 you know, five years ago, let's say. And, you know, we remember that, that, you know, final at the Australian open against Rafa, the Epic one where it just, those guys were pummeling each other and, and bringing each other to, to a different level physically. And it just felt like this year, like if Novak had to play that match, he would never have to play that match because like his lung capacity or his body is just like able to withstand um, a level of physicality 
that no one else on tour can no. match at all. Like, not even close. I completely, I, I completely agree. It feels physical by yes. this dominance. I mean, it doesn't feel as mental or as tactical or as technique. I mean, obviously, his technique is super, super solid, and his mental game has been great, too. But it's the physicality is what you notice first with Novak when you see how he's just impenetrable. And it's a defense first. Not that it, it was a movement-based physicality. It's not like he's uh, an Isner out there dominating or something like that. Right. He's blowing people away with his size and, you know, uh, angles that he generates from his physical uh, extraordinariness and just pure dimensions. It's, it's all strength and athleticism from a fairly compact frame. And that's that's definitely, definitely pretty impressive. But no, yeah, I mean... I mean, and I just wanted to add too, what I think Novak has done in terms of elevating the game and bringing the game, the men's game to a new place is that even when you look back at all of like the great dominant champions, you know, uh, in recent history, obviously we, we look at Roger and we look at Rafa, there were weaknesses, glaring weaknesses that you watch them play and you're like, okay, Roger, obviously aesthetically gifted, the footwork, balletic, um, you know, an offensive minded player, all these sorts of things. But you always knew that a, the offense could go off on the forehand and B, there was always the backhand issue, right? That, that if you could attack it as Rafa did for years um, and as Novak does now um, that you had a chance. And then you look at Rafa and you know, yeah, there's always going to be issues of like the physicality, whether or not he can be that physical week in and week out day to day. Uh, The serve was not always great. Um, yeah, you know, the backhand was, was sometimes you'd leave the ball short. There were just issues, you know, that you could identify as like, well, fast forward for never his thing. Yeah. yeah. Something. But Novak is just, he's like the Terminator, you know, he's like the T2000. There's no weakness when you watch him play. You just kind of sit there and you watch him and you're like, how the heck are you supposed to beat this person? And I have to say the last player that I watched play where i thought that was vika hmm. during the streak during the streak remember you I mean you remember that moment of course. Uh, at indian wells where i when i literally turned to you and was like how are you supposed to beat her like if she's playing like this how do you beat this person you know like uh because it's a perfect again balance of offense and defense and, yeah, and right realize, on the baseline right yeah. on the baseline you can't push them off of it they return incredibly well yeah maybe not these flamboyish uh or flamboyant uh or flamboyish <laughs> flamboyish <laughs> flamboyish um no but flamboyant winners all the time but like incredible depth right on the baseline diving the ability to control i don't I, you know it it's just a really remarkable thing that he was able that he did to this year and um and yeah like i said it's the level the level at which he played and the level at which he elevated the men's game it's now a chase to try and reel them back in. And I don't know who can do it. So let's talk big picture. Do you, I mean, Novak went wire to wire number one this year. Is there any reason to think he won't be number one at the end of 2016? I don't think so. No. I mean, obviously there's so many unknowns with health and everything, but his lead, well, obviously the points lead will be completely gone or not matter by the end of next year. He'll have to take another lap on the track and reset everything, but there's no one coming close. No. There really isn't. I mean, what you saw, for example, I mean, because what you saw this year was, okay, yes, if you have a player like a Stan Wawrinka who has the power to actually hit through Djokovic, 
um, and the Djokovic defense, then maybe. But as we know, Stan Wawrinka can't maintain that level over the course of 11 months, yeah. week in, week out. That That's a one-off. You know, on any given day, we know Stan Wawrinka can beat anybody and be a world beater. But on any given day, he loses to anyone. Um, Roger would ostensibly be the next in line, I suppose, because mm-hmm. he has notched uh, wins over Novak. But again, you look at the data points and Novak wins when it matters. So there's that. A resurgent Rafa, maybe. But even before Rafa, you know, began to struggle and, uh, you know, had his big dip and the injuries and everything from last year. And obviously 2015 has been a year of a, of a comeback for Rafa. Yeah. Novak was still getting the better of him back in 2011, 2012, yeah. you know, like, so it wasn't like Rafa was the one that had the solution. And then Andy, bless you, adore you. But, <laughs> you know, cons- taking a lot of losses to Novak. Yeah, My consistently yeah. to beat Novak. Novak just does everything that Andy does better. And, um, you know, so it's a big, it's a big uh, chase for Andy Murray to to get himself to that level. So I, I, I just don't see it barring massive injury that knocks him out for like a month or two or really derails him. clearly impairs him yeah yeah i I just i don't see anybody that's even close no no i don't i don't and i mean you mentioned rafa there novak is now level in the head-to-head with rafa which is the first time anybody of a relevant player not like dustin brown or or rosol um has been ahead of or ties right level now with rafa in the head-to-head uh, which is pretty remarkable. Got all the way to twenty-three all, I believe. Uh, so that's a long time coming for them, and it, I think it speaks to Novak. And it wasn't even like Novak racked up a lot of wins against Rafa when Rafa had this down year. He only played him twice, I think, right, right? at the French and, and London. So if he'd played him more, really, Novak would be ahead this year if he'd gotten any more looks at Rafa. Yeah, uh, but he didn't. Uh, so that's impressive, and he's also level with Roger, which he has been several times. This year and each time Roger <laughs> gets the next win just to uh, pull the football away from Charlie Brown. <laughs> oh, Novak Lucy, again. bearded uh, Lucy. He's such. A, what do you think? You mentioned that. What do you think about the beard? The beard is a big discussion point. I don't let's think get, it's let's, a good let's get look. Some of, the, some of the whimsy of London. No beard. Not into the beard. No, I'm not into the beard. I I like my Roger clean shaven. Um, uh, part of it is though. I mean, maybe if he was like, if he rocked the beard like in Australia or Indian Wells or the Middle East or something like where there's sun and, you know, there's more warmth to the visual of tennis, maybe it would look better. But under the weird blue lights of the O2 arena, everyone already looks like really ill. Like, I don't know if you guys notice. I notice because I go through the, the photo wire, but the players look ill they look like they have come down it with consumption um and that they're pallid and then they start sweating they look clammy as opposed to like uh you know i don't know healthy uh but they look clammy they look pale they look a little callow in the cheeks and the face and so i think that it made roger look old in a bad way um and i don't think that roger needs to look old and i don't think that he that he does you know like when he's clean shaven he doesn't look necessarily his age um so i would prefer my roger unbearded <laughs> like you referring to my roger <laughs> <laughs> my version of roger your version of roger okay that's fair uh other another whimsy thing was you mentioned novak and roger they had an interesting sort of first match uh at least with some whimsical 
Uh, I feel like hang up and listen to my whimsy, but uh, <laughs> having some nonsense with the towels, London uh, made went through the effort of having monogram towels the players' chairs, which I think were new this year. No, that, that's been a thing for a while. Okay. I think, yeah. I hadn't noticed it before. I don't remember it before. Anyway, There's nobody been stealing benches, right? So, so Roger went to walk on court first for his round robin match against Novak. As always, the lower ranked player walks on court first, and Novak and Roger like wandered over to Novak's chair or took the first chair, I guess, because I guess usually the first person walks all the way to the end. Anyway, he sat down on a chair that had Novak Djokovic uh, embroidered towels on it, and you then you saw Djokovic like go to the remaining chair and find Roger's towels and look a little perplexed. <laughs> it was, it was, is this anything? I mean, it seems as I recount this, I'm like, wow, this is really stupid that I'm telling this story, but you know, did it, does it matter? Is it, is it something? It feels like, uh, Matosovic knocking over Rodal's water bottles or not that much or unintentional or I don't know. Is this something Courtney? I don't think it's anything. Roger certainly denied it was. Yeah, and I don't, I genuinely don't think that Novak cares. Now, to the extent that, like, Roger's like, I don't care, and Novak's like, I don't care. But Roger, deep down in his heart of hearts, is like, I'm going to fuck with him a little bit. Like, you know, and and I'm going to, you know, go to the chair that I want to go to. That is also true. I mean, as the player that walks out first, you get to choose what chair that you want to sit at. And so that's the case at every tournament, and the World Tour Finals should be theoretically no different. Um, so yeah, I mean, but at the same time, you almost kind of, there's a part of me that's kind of surprised that Roger would like go, not go out of his way, but like pick the chair knowing that it was like quote unquote Novak's chair because the towel was there and like, not just walk over to his chair. Cause Roger just seems to me as a guy, this is, this is a player who says, I only need I only need like ten minutes to get ready for a match, like mentally, like you know, like he's very like nonplus, and mm-hmm. that is his image. Like whereas you see Rafa toying with his bottles and going through all these rituals and whatever, like Rogers, like the not that. Well, maybe Rogers did, didn't notice the towel. It wasn't like that's true too. Immediately facing him, so he could have sat down and he wasn't gonna like go get up and switch once Novak was already on the court or whatever. Yeah, that's true. Which I find to be, I mean. If that's the case, which I, I think that it's entirely plausible that that's the case, I'm kind of like, what was the ATP thinking? <laughs> like, putting pre-monogram towels out there. Like, you know, like, and then the Give them to the player once they to, sit down. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Give them to the player once they sit down. Exactly. Anyway. Yeah, I don't know. It was weird. <laughs> it was just such a dumb thing to think about. And admittedly, because I'm a WTA reporter, there was a part of me that was just like, oh my god, like... If Maria Sharapova did this to Serena, yeah, to Serena at the at the WTA finals, the discussion would sound so different mm-hmm. than the discussion that was happening with Roger. Like with Roger, it was like this whole kind of jokey, like oh, he took his towel, like took his chair, like ha ha ha. I just was sitting there imagining what would happen if like it happened on the WTA and cringing. Because people just want to take it there. And that was weirdly what where my mind went. Uh, because that's my job. It's not but, weird. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, just little things like that. It just was like, well, we all treat it like it's fun and flippant when the guys do it. But when the girls do it, everybody's making cat noises. 
the guys are so much cattier than the girls now, first so of all. Second, second of all, Roger won this match. So maybe he should do things like this more often. He didn't He didn't take the wrong chair in the final, and he lost that. Or I guess maybe Novak walked on first because he was a lower seed. Anyway, he wasn't a group winner. Um, those guys all aside. The other thing I wanted to mention in this London was Stan Havrinka, who made the semifinals. Uh, also... Uh, lost twice, lost to Nadal in group. Nadal won his group, which I wouldn't have expected. Uh, so that was a good result for him, for sure. Beating both Murray and Stan is a good note to go out on for Rafa, even if he loses to, to Djokovic in the final. He has to be pretty happy with how his fall wrapped up. But Stan had just has laid a couple uh, turds. <laughs> in, 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 I so knew that you were going to say turds. I was like, I was, which I was word debating, is he going to go like, with? I was like, I think going to say turd. <laughs> Which I, I I didn't think he deserved dud. I think these were these were bad. Oh, these were steamers. These were this was bad. Uh, so bad turdy tennis. So uh, <laughs> so I mean he he plays uh, he loses to uh, Nadal in group. He loses to Roger in round robin. I mean not Stan just loses loses badly and these were bad matches. Vaguely tankily. I mean like and he had a pretty solid middle part of the year, but. Stan's year, we kind of forget. I mean, he had some weird losses early on. He lost. He he obviously he won, did decently in Australia in a weird semifinal with Djokovic, where he got bagels in the fifth set. Uh, then he won Rotterdam, but then he lost. This is going way back into the archives. Obviously, he lost to Sikovsky in Marseille. He lost to Robin Hassa in Indian Wells in the first match there, and in the second match in Miami, he lost to Manorino. Then he put together back-to-back losses to Grigor Dimitrov at Clay Masters, and nobody was losing to Grigor Dimitrov this year. Uh, it, it was It's a weird year for, for Stan, and obviously he finishes it at number four. And Courtney, you were saying before that like it doesn't seem to get – he seems to get a pass for these things, even when he's having what would be for the rest of these multi-slam winners uh, – results that would bring in jeers Sam's stand seems to be uh dodging that or, or not drawing that for some reason it's 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 interesting yeah i i want i mean there are a bunch of different theories on it because um i was talking to david kane on the most recent wta insider podcast about this because we were talking through like the wta season and specifically we were talking about uh simona Halep, i think and mm-hmm. uh, there was a I can't remember if I said this to David online or offline, but I just was like, why is it that, you know, Stan Favrinka goes into press is incredibly open about in a lot of ways, his lack of ambition um, that, you know, everything about his career is more than he already ever expected that everything's kind of a bonus, uh, things like that. And he's weirdly celebrated for it. You know, he's he's almost given a pass for all of these losses. You know, he lost in the semifinals to Federer uh, in a really poorly played, at least second set. Uh, the first set wasn't great either, but the second set was definitely just like, what are you doing? Um, and, you know, as people were kind of doing, I was watching on social media, a lot of people were doing kind of the postmortem on the Vavrinka 2015, which, look, if you beat Novak Djokovic in the season that he had in a Grand Slam final, like you get your props. Like if you go winless everywhere else, fair enough. But there was a part of me that just kind of thought, you know, he's he's being given a pass, you know, because he's he, he's not a week in week week out. He's competitor. certainly 
Yeah. You know, He's and certainly he, getting graded on a curve. Yeah, and he and and how many times have we watched Wawrinka matches where you can just absolutely tell that he's just over it? He's like, yeah. whatever, I don't care anymore. And he checks out. He checks out, and no one calls him on it, and no one criticizes him for it. And at the end of the day, we judge him by his career highs, which fair enough. That that's not necessarily a poor metric to judge somebody on, but I guess my curiosity was piqued by this idea because that's not the rubric that is necessarily applied to all players no like we don't necessarily judge all players by like the peaks of their careers and so it just kind of got me into thinking like why is that like why does stan get a free pass when he's like super like setting the expectations incredibly low for himself whereas like simona halep like, who kind of does the same thing, right? Like, I'm not a robot. I'm a normal girl. I can win. A, like, I can beat the best players. I can lose the weakest players. You know, all these sorts of things that have come out of Simona's mouth. Like, why is it, though, that on the whole, she's criticized for it? And I, I you know, and she's yeah. not the only one. She's just the example that it's coming to, 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 you know, my fingertips at the moment. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that I think, is. I, I think it has to do somewhat with expectations, just based on how they started their careers, and it goes something something we talked about before, like you know how comparing how people talk about Skiavoni versus Ivanovic. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like totally. Stan is definitely more of a Skiavoni. He's he's someone who or like a Lee Na. Yeah, or yeah, but you right. yeah, I guess so. But Lee Na, I think, was sort of building more towards a slam than Stan was. Stan was. In some ways, she was getting up higher in the rankings and she had looks and she made a final before she won one. And, you know, she had chances. And when when she won a slam, it felt like time. When when Stan won a slam, it was still it was like a whoa moment the same way that it was with Schiavone. Um, and he backed it up and all that. And I think he's still being treated as playing like he's playing with house money. And I think that's fair on some level. But at the same time, he's just not being treated. He's a two time slam winner. Who started the year in the top five and ended the year in the top five? He's right in in terms of how this year shook out. Uh, in terms of you know if you want to talk about the big five or whatever, I mean he was had a better he finished ahead of Rafa. He has the same number of career slams as Murray. And he doesn't get anywhere in the scrutiny of those two guys. Yeah. So I think I think now it's time for him to not that he I don't think he's intentionally deflecting and I think this is more of a media issue and a fan perception issue and commentators they just don't fully embrace him as a a, a big heavyweight in the sense that he's going to get you know blasted for for the losses or at least take take heat maybe maybe no one should take heat in the big picture but it's certainly he is certainly getting a, a pass that other guys don't get I think which is what all our point is here he really does it it's a very I don't know it's a very curious thing to me yeah because it yeah there's just there's a lot going on there where i'm i I don't know i'm still unpacking it if you guys have theories please let me know as to why he gets a free pass not just like on court off court all of it like he gets a free pass all of it yeah and and i don't know i don't i don't really understand it I think it's it almost feels maybe it's sort of like because people think he's federer's little brother on some level and he's not yeah, like an I mean, adult. I think that that's partly right. And I think that your citation of our conversation before about Skiavoni versus Ivanovic and kind of like recency bias of like, why do we look at an Ivanovic who won a major and got to number one when she was 20 years old, which should be a celebrated thing. Yeah. Uh, but now she has become 
uh, arguably punchline. a punchline. Yeah. Uh, whereas we look at a Schiavone or even a Lee Na, uh, a Flavia Panetta, although there was less time to really think about this with Flavia. <laughs> she gave us about 20 minutes. Um, where we're like, oh, look at you. You're so great. Whereas, like, you know, you could very easily flip the argument and say, Lee Na, Flavia Panetta, and Francesca Schiavone all underperformed. Mm-hmm. Or, like, a Sam Stozer is a good example. I mean, given her weapons, which we've seen, uh, there is a an argument to be made that she has underperformed through her career until she won the U.S. Open. I'd agree with that. Right? So, but she's given kind of a pass in the way that, like, an Ivanovich doesn't get or, I don't know, any other young talent who maybe didn't even win a major but, like, came close or, like, whatever. Denara. Denara was. Um, Andy Murray, I think, is in this level a little yeah. bit. Andy Murray was somebody who had expectations from early on, being a Brit and coming close and you know knocking on the door for a while. He got all those expectations. I think uh, you can go back further. I think people like Moresmo early in her career got a bunch of flack for being weak mentally and stuff like that. And Kleisters did too. And both of them, once they won, I guess, got – well, both of them mostly were totally embraced once they won. They stopped being knocked. They both – didn't hang around that much longer yeah, after they stopped true. after they stopped winning especially kim yeah kim kim's career trajectory is not comparable to anybody because it was so off and on uh but yeah it's it's uh definitely definitely stan it's all good for stan i think stan has to be is oh, getting the best sure. of all worlds so he wouldn't want anything to change here uh so i just think that it's important from a commentator perspective not commentator like television commentator but those of us who punditry who are in the business of opining about these players and and writing about them and and writing and crafting narratives and all these sorts of things to really kind of because i know that stan is very likable as a human being like he's very charming he's he's, you know he's one people over yeah and fair enough but there comes a point where you do have to like (laughs) you know just because your gut tells you, like, oh, I like this person, so I'm going to write, like, a nice thing about them. Like, that's not necessarily, you know, truth. Uh, you do have to look at, like, his results. And the results that you were reading off earlier uh, just now, that is terrible. Manorino? <laughs> Dimitrov which twice? Hassa? Not which even was... Andy Murray loses to Robin Hassa. No, he would never. He would never. Okay. Uh, speaking of Andy Murray, maybe we can use that to segue to the Davis Cup final, which is the one last hanging Chad on this season, uh, which will just won't end, but it will eventually in Belgium. Uh, obviously, there's a bunch of security concerns going on in Belgium right now, and we're hoping that this, or hoping everybody stays safe first and foremost, but also hoping this final goes off and is played as as, as is due, and everything goes smoothly there. Uh, Andy Murray will be uh, leading leading the British team, which will include his brother Jamie, uh, probably Dominic Inglet, I think, is a reserve sort of doubles guy, and then some uh, other player. <laughs> That's the top hundred. James Ward. James Ward or Kyle Edmund. I don't know if they've made a final verdict on that as of Dan recording. Evans, I think, made some sort of challenger run at some point. He did, but he didn't make like the preliminary list. I think, okay. or at least last one I heard, he won. Yeah, he won a challenger. He won in uh knoxville he won the challenge he beat tiafo in a final and it was weird it was anyway the u.s challenger swing sidebar alert wrapped up and noah rubin wound up getting a u.s open wild card which is going to be it's interesting because he hasn't played 
on tour much of the challengers at all because he's been in college and so that's sort of a surprise main draw australia participant there um anyway andy murray will not be joined on the team by aliage bedene which is the whole point of this segment uh because bedene went to uh arbitration of some sort in prague to see if he could play for great britain in davis cup right before the final and he flew to prague for this uh hearing or decision and the verdict was eh, we'll decide later in Ugh. march just okay we that's a terrible verdict by any i don't think anybody thinks that's the right choice i understand on some level that you don't want like a at the buzzer uh change of status on bedene because if i was if i was belgium that would bother me considerably if this guy's been ineligible all year until right before the final that suddenly changes um, because nothing in his status changed at all. And nothing, there's no new evidence on Bettinay's Britishness. Um, and the rule, which came out, uh, uh, I guess it took effect, I don't know exactly when, but in the last couple of years, uh, that no player can rep- ever represent, uh, it's a grandfathering rule, but no player who has ever rep- previously represented one country can now represent another in Davis Cup uh, or Fed Cup or the Olympics, I guess. Uh, Courtney, what's your take on the Bedene situation and implications it has uh, for this, for just anywhere you want to take it? Because I think there is a decent amount in it, even though it seems like fairly small potatoes with this uh, Slovenian turned Brit can or can't do. <laughs> yeah. Um, the My initial reaction to getting that press release from uh, the ITF that they have deferred the decision on Bedene, uh, was it, it gave me flashbacks to my lawyer days. <laughs> and uh, I used to do, I was a litigator and we would file motions, obviously, with the court. And the court, the, at least the court that I was operating in front of, which I'm not even going to name the district, but it was a pain in the ass. Um, but basically, they, the judge would constantly defer rulings and put off rulings. And anytime a, a side wanted a continuance, which was a delay, uh, he would grant it. And it became incredibly clear that the reason why he was granting these deferrals and these continuances and refusing to rule was because he just didn't want to make a decision. That he was mm. hoping that if he would just de- keep deferring it, that the parties would either the, the issue would become moot and, yeah. you know, it would no longer be something that he had to rule on or the parties would become so exasperated that they would come together and just come up with their own solution or compromise and they're just running out the clock yeah. running out the clock exactly and so that was like the thing that i thought when the minute i got the itf thing is like they don't want to make a decision because they don't want to actually either uh, you know counteract their own rule because i think you and i were talking about it before we got online that that under the rule bethany cannot play no the rule as the rule says it's fairly clear and they already did one decision earlier this year uh, to clarify a couple problematic cases, uh, which were Bedene and Dustin Brown, maybe some others, but those are the two notable players who were in this appeal situation. And uh, Dustin Brown managed to win his appeal because I guess he had switched to Germany or had some sort of German clear attachment earlier on uh, than Bedene did. And Bedene had his uh, appeal rejected, and that was it. And under the under the rule as it's written, yeah, that's it. Now, the question of is this a good rule – for me, it's a very clear answer. No, that is a rule terrible, is terrible. 
terrible. This is an awful rule. Like, I understand this rule. So, so basically, as we said, the rule is that once you represent in one country, and now at any point in your career, you can never represent another country, which seems incredibly binding and incredibly restrictive. And also the grandfathering of it makes it incredibly arbitrary. So, for example, Bedene can't play because he played uh, for Slovenia and I think one or two Davis Cup ties. And he was like a fourth when he was younger. He was like on the dead rubbers or something. He wasn't even like in the main parts of these matches. Uh, someone else like Ila Tomjanovic, who switched uh, more Kazakhstanishly than Bedene, I think, to Australia out of nowhere. Uh, she had, again, previously played uh, when she was a teenager for Croatia in one, I think, Fed Cup tie, and now won't be able to play for Australia. Whereas Daria Gavrilova, who switched more recently, or at the same time, actually, as Tomjanovic, will be able to play in these tournaments for Australia because she had never been picked for the Russian Fed Cup team because Russia's a big country and she was never that good while she was Russian, whereas Tomjanovic came from a smaller tennis pool in Croatia and got picked. That just seems arbitrary again. And like Rodionova and Gaidasova both came earlier and were able to play for Australia after uh, after they switched. And it, it's just arbitrary grandfathering. And, and just this idea to restrict people to restrict their geopolitical movement, especially now that we have, you know, the world is in this uncertain place and saying that you can't immigrate, essentially. It's a weirdly xenophobic rule that I guess I think is all built out of this Kazakhstan panic that is just not really, a, I think, uh, something that was should be taken that seriously. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it, a huge overreaction. It's a huge overreaction, and it it it's it is to me just complete and utter restraint of trade. At the end of the day, you have tennis players, and these tennis players, tennis is an expensive sport, and and those players that come from smaller countries, poorer countries where federations cannot support them, are at an inherent disadvantage, and to the extent that they have a skill set that is beneficial to maybe a more wealthy federation, a more wealthy country. Mm-hmm. Um, and they want to take advantage of it um, to further their career and, you know, maybe pave the way towards greatness, towards winning a major, you know, all these sorts of things. They should be allowed to do that. Yeah. And, and part of, and the problem is obviously you can, you know, switch nationalities and play under a new federation and, you know, you'll see that with Tomjanovic, she'll get support from Tennis Australia, Gavrilova, um, you know, the Tadashvili, who was Tashvili Georgian. Switched to the U.S., yeah. Yeah, who's Although Georgian. I don't... I don't I, think she gets support. She's not going to be eligible. Well, I, I'm not sure about support, but I don't think she's going to be eligible. I think she's played for Georgia before. No, 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 I know. This is separate. Yeah. My argument is separate okay. and apart from, from right. uh, Davis Cup. Right. switch. Yeah, separate from Davis Cup and Fed Cup duties. But just like... They want to make the switch because of, there's a federation that values what they do and has the resources to back them. Right. But one of the carrots for a federation to invest in a player like this is for Fed Cup and Davis Cup and Olympic participation. So if the ITF is stepping in and saying, no, 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 you, you can't do that, players who randomly played some random tie and therefore are weirdly wedded to your country and you can't change nationalities and contribute to your new country uh in davis cup fed cup or olympics that to me is a massive problem it is it's just incredibly problematic it is as you said xenophobic 
Um, it doesn't recognize the current state of tennis um, and how no. difficult it is to build a career and to become a professional in this business uh, and in this sport. And you're basically, via the ITF, rigging the game towards rich federations and rich countries. And you can't do that. This sport is a joke if you do that. Um, and, uh, you know, these players, regardless of where you're born, you have the, the, the right and the ability to go and build a career um, as best as you can. And to the extent that there is a national or not a national, international governing body stepping in and saying, no, you can't, that to me, that just straight up pisses me off. I don't I, have in a more articulate way of saying it. It just pisses me off. If they wanted to have a way for, and I don't know how exactly they would do this, to prevent you know, players being rented or something, if, if, if Bedenay had to, if he switched to Britain, he could never switch back to Slovenia or something. That would not bother me, really. I mean, if there was some way, because yeah, Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan did seem to have contracts with players that did expire at various points, like Karatancheva is no longer Kazakh. I think Ksenia Pervak, I think her Kazakhstan, her Kazakhness lapsed at some point. I mean, that, I have no problem with that if they want to do that or make it so you only get one switch or, you know, or you can't or, switch or, 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 you can switch or, from place to place, but you actually, can switch back. I think the best rule, which I think makes the most sense is having a waiting period of like maybe like three or even like four years okay. between Davis cup, fed cup ties. That seems yeah. to me totally fair. That's fair. Like why I would that not that. be a perfect rule? I think it would prevent the switching for short term thinking, but would allow something like better to play, you know, for Great Britain, I don't know when his paperwork went through. I think last year or this. Anyway, at some point later in his career, from now, now because he wanted to uh, move on from Slovenia, which had a limited opportunity, and actually a lot of players his age, he came up in a weirdly thick cohort of uh, Slovenian players with Kavčić and Zemlja and Blaž Rola. I mean, there were a lot of guys he was competing for limited resources with in Slovenia. Then um, he went to get out of that. And now he can never play in the Olympics again. What kind of rule is that? Yeah, yeah. It, makes, it makes no sense. And I, I am very curious because obviously the new head of the ITF is David Haggerty, um, an American. And I don't think that we can sit here and pretend that, you know, an, an individual's kind of worldview doesn't shape these sorts of policies. No, of course not. And and to me, I think it it would be it would be great if Haggerty, as an American, like stepped in and was like, yeah, no, this rule is dumb. We have, I mean, we have an, a history in America of having players who have come over to play for America. Obviously, more during the Cold War, but we had Navratilova, Sellas, and Ivan Lendl late in his career switched to playing for the U.S. I mean, this has been a thing that's been going on in America for forever and ever. Uh, it's yeah, we would be, I I think. We'd like to think, even though current news events might lead you to think otherwise, I think in, in America we're generally decently <laughs> understanding of immigration and think that it's pretty neato. So. It is. It's, it's all right. It, it, yeah. At the end of the day, in the aggregate, it is a positive and not a negative. Completely. And so I understand, I'm not crying for the British Davis Cup team because if, if they did have Benenay, this tie would have become even more slam dunky because he would become yeah. third highest ranked player in the tie behind Murray and Goffin. Yeah, he would have been very likely, he would have been a favorite if he was in a fifth rubber against whoever, which is not necessarily the case uh, for whoever they have now. So this does impact the tie, for sure. Yeah. Decision. Um, and he maybe, and he could have 
done a lot more damage to to Golfan in the first rubber than uh than anybody. Although he is obviously it would have been a weird situation having him suddenly thrown in the mix as British. So I understand not wanting to change it for this year. If they had decided, uh, if they gave a ruling like we you allow you to play for Britain, but starting next year, that would have been fine with me too. Um, yeah. Anyway, they did not handle this well. So, boo ITF, yay immigrants. That's all. <laughs> open borders. Open all the borders. Very low level refugee. This the person leaving Slovenia. <laughs> this is true. But, but you know, all the same, spirits, openness is a good thing. Agreed. So one thing we haven't talked about on the show yet is speaking of decisions and whatnot is the budding legal developments going on between Jeannie Bouchard and the USTA, uh, which have been playing out in. A district court in the Eastern District of New York, uh, where Jeannie Bouchard is suing for damages from the head injury uh, she said she suffered at the U.S. Open because of their negligence with a slippery floor with a foreign substance on it on the locker room floor. Uh, the USCA recently, last week, filed its response to Jeannie's complaint. Those are the right terms. That's yes, correct. yes, that's correct. Okay, so uh, for this, uh, we can't talk about it entirely normally on the show, but I do have a clip here of my discussion with Jeannie's lawyer, who is Benedict Morelli, uh, and he's a, a fun character and very expressive guy who you will get to hear uh, defending Jeannie's side of it. The USDA uh, does not want to comment on this, which is pretty standard for the uh, defense side. Uh, but here is some thoughts from the genie side. They're blaming her 100% that she needed consent. I, I, I mean, some of it is, 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 seems like they don't even understand what we're suing for. Yeah. You know? But, um... I guess but, they, they, you they, know, they say this thing about how she, they think she she needed like someone to escort her to this rumor that she was unaccompanied. And that was an issue. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And by the way, it, it, it's, it goes against what the protocol is. Yeah. I mean, does that make any sense to you? I mean, seriously, these are perfect. These are world class athletes. Okay. Right. Who need an attendant to walk them into the physio room. Yeah. What really had to happen was everybody should have been around, but obviously either the management gave them time off before they were supposed to, because as long as someone's on the court, they're not allowed to leave. And, and, it, and it's the usual, not the unusual, that a player comes off the court and has an ice bath. It's the usual not the unusual. And Jeannie had played two matches that day and was playing two matches the next day. Right. Okay? So you, you, the, the rule is that you can't let anybody leave or close anything up before everyone's off the court and gone. Yeah. This is the, the U.S. Open. You know? This isn't like uh, two players playing in the park. Let's open. Come on. You know, this is almost ludicrous. It's almost like the the defense doesn't even understand what normally happens. 
and what the rules are. Now, let's just think about this. We're just two guys in the street talking about it, okay? Uh-huh. And it's just, it's, it's another place, it's another defendant, okay? Uh-huh. And you, you happen to know that you just applied a very slippery substance to a surface that's going to become very, very slippy because it's tile already, okay? Mm-hmm. And you have the light off. You don't have any attendance there. You don't have any signs in front of it. You don't warn anybody. Okay? And all you had to do was close and lock the door. If that, I mean, you, you can't do it. I mean, you shouldn't have done it, but you at least do that. Okay? Yeah. So, so is this like an unreasonable thing that we're asking? This is ridiculous. You know, I mean, can you imagine telling any jury this kind of defense? We had no duty to warn you. Really, you know those little yellow signs that you see everywhere? Wet floor, this, that. That guy would be out of business. The sign guy. Yeah. There's no more reason for the sign guy. The USTA's lawyer says so. There's no duty to warn. Sign guy. Goodbye. <laughs> I mean, think about how stupid that is. Yeah. Really. I mean, it's craziness, you know? And I, I read it. I'm half, I'm hysterical halfway through. No, I mean, I guess, in, in some ways it's boilerplate because blame the victim, blame the victim. But come on. You don't have a duty to warn? No, actually, the rule is at the U.S. Open that you have to stay open, okay? And you have to make these facilities available to every player until they're all off the court and they're all gone. This is the USTA and the U.S. Open. Yeah. Do you realize that Jeannie Bouchard has endorsements from Nike, Coca-Cola, Rolex. She was once number five in the world. She's only 21. And they're saying that she was wrong. It's ridiculous. And and some some place in the answer, they even said that they were going to... um, I forget the words they used. I'm looking for it. They were going to uh, be very firm in proving this in court. Oh, they're going to they're going to hold the plaintiff. Listen to this: to strict proof thereof. What <laughs> do you know? Do you know that I've been trying cases since 1977? Okay. They're gonna hold me to strict proof thereof. What? No, it didn't. It, at one point, it didn't seem really like uh, they when they when they talk about the lighting in the room, it didn't seem. Yeah. It didn't seem entirely like they were refuting this. What you guys contend that there was this. Uh, there was this cleaning substance. They just said that. Uh, let me see if I can find the wording here. That. Uh, the conditions alleged by plaintiff to have caused or contributed her injuries were open and obvious. So, 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean seriously. I mean, let's think about this. It's about ten thirty at night. Okay. Yeah. A player comes off the court, just played two matches, goes to the locker room, and then is going to the physiotherapy room for a nice bath, and the door is open, which invites you to go right. Generally, when doors are open, not unlocked, but open, there's an invitation, right? Yeah. So so you and I, we're, we're both reasonable guys, right? I hope so, yeah. Um, the light's off. There's, there's a slippery substance on the floor, and that's open and obvious to you and me. Really? Really? Do they want to tell that to a jury with me there? I, I, I wouldn't think so. That's the thing. When they talk about these, when they talk about these, protocols they think they should have known that she should have known um what does that what what does that mean does that mean that she's not supposed to go in any room without an escort or what i'm confused i was it's i know but i guess that's what they want the inference they want us to draw that inference but it happens to not be true yeah it isn't true (laughs) it just isn't true and and look somebody screwed up here ben someone screwed up right whether it was the management that didn't tell these people what to do or the, uh, you know, on their own, some of the attendants or one of the attendants who was supposed to be there wanted to go home early uh, or they forgot someone was on the court. You know, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But I'm going to tell you that, that this is not the most complicated case I've ever had in my life. You know? I've been doing cases like this since I'm a young man, okay? And and I could understand you saying, hey, look, you know, we're not negligent. Uh, nice, short answer, you know? We're not negligent. We, you know, we think you were also culpable, you this or that. But this, come on. It was open and obvious. You, they're not saying we didn't put the substance down. You know, there's such a thing as called affirmative creation. They created the condition, and they failed to warn anyone of it. Right. That's the law, and it defies this answer. I mean, they talk about assumption of risk. Do you think that Jeannie was it, was, was assuming any risk by walking do, into this room? Do, do you know? Do you know? The, the, the term assumption of the risk, I think, stopped being used about 30 years ago, okay? okay. But we'll use it, all right? The, 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 the law is comparative negligence, okay? Here's when you assume risk. Assumption of the risk applies to skiing down a mountain, which is an inherently dangerous thing to do. Jumping out of an airplane. Is that this... I would. I mean, I, seriously. I would say no, no. That's that's what I said. And they, of and they, course not. You and they, assume and they, the risk walking into a room. They use they use that phrase in their answer. They they do say. I know. Yeah. I know. It's ridiculous. You don't assume the risk walking into a room. Let me tell you what you assume walking into a room. That there's not going to be uh, any kind of a dangerous slippery substance on the floor. That's what you assume when you walk into a room, unless someone tells you otherwise. And they didn't say they warned it, did they? They said, we don't have to. 
Right. It was open and obvious. Well, I love it. I love the answer. I think we'll, the whole answer is great. So obviously this is all super, super preliminary. This case will probably be hanging around for a while. Uh, it's All these things can be changed. It's just very opening statements that may or may not matter much in the end. And we'll see how long how long this goes. But it'll be, certainly be a storyline to continue to follow as uh, Jeannie gets back on court next year as planned. And I will add that that um, in, I think, a recent interview, she did say that she's not sure if she's playing the Australian Open. Oh, really? Yeah. So so there is that. Um, I think it was maybe her first public comments about the the lawsuit and stuff like that. But so we'll see. OK, so we should wrap up this week's show or at least the main part of it with some seasonal gratitude. Courtney, it's Thanksgiving week. Thanksgiving's a pretty cool holiday, I gotta say. It's one of my favoritists of the American holiday slate. I think it's pretty great. There's eating and football and no present buying requirements. That's nice. It I'm is into nice. It. I'm very into it. So with that in mind, let's think about things we're thankful for on the tennis-ish front. Things that have happened, 2015-ish things or, or, or longer-running things or whatever you have in mind. What, Courtney, you want to start off our thanksgiving table discussion what are you thankful for in 2015 as well, we come to the end of the year yeah i i'm going to start with with an obvious one uh i'm not really going out on a limb here but i am thankful for serena williams mm. and you know i it's hard because she hasn't really been part of the conversation uh since the u.s open nope. um she's obviously pulled herself out of things and shut down her season and is off doing her own thing. I mean, aside and apart from, you know, chasing down potential phone robbers and uh, so weird. whatever. I mean, like those are the, the reasons why Serena is in the news, but when Serena was in the news for tennis reasons, it was great. I mean, I, I think 2015 was an absolute joy to cover because there was all this momentum that was building with every single major with every single big event um and it became kind of serena watch 2015 and yeah, the women's u.s open this year i think was the big it felt like the biggest grand slam on either side that i'd covered as long as i've been doing this for sure yeah i mean outside of like murray at wimbledon uh or once uh, he got there yeah yeah, yeah yeah once he got there but but yeah no the the lead up the the hype everything it was incredible and you know like um obviously every year si you know, nominates their sportsman of the year. And, and usually they're pretty good about including, you know, both a women's nominee and a men's nominee. I think that there's kind of, I think Novak's been nominated a bunch of times, uh, Roger, Serena. But I think that what benefited uh, tennis with respect to Serena is that she got people to pay attention to tennis, people who don't aren't in the trenches and maybe don't listen to this podcast and don't have Twitter accounts that are dedicated to tennis and mm -hmm. all these sorts of things. And, and she put tennis, you know, on the map for nine months out of the season and to be a part of that and to be part of that machine, I guess, in a lot of ways to, to build it forward. That was very fun. Um, and it was just really cool. Even a couple of weeks ago, I went to this uh, uh, event at my old law firm for for former uh, associates and partners at the firm, and the number of people that were asking me about Serena, like, oh, 
you write about tennis. What's Serena really like? Like whatever. I get that all the time. Yeah. yeah, but like that wasn't happening last year or the year before, with at least with the fervency that it happened like this year. So she was definitely part of the public consciousness, which meant oh, yeah. tennis was part of the public consciousness, and that is always a good thing to me. Uh, so I am incredibly thankful for what she was able to do, and I just really hope, although it would be very difficult, but I really hope that 2015 will be remembered for the fact that she became so, you know, tantalizingly close to completing the calendar slam um, and that she was a badass for nine months uh, and not that she lost to Roberta Vinci and shut down her season and, you know, uh, hit away. I I don't want the latter to be the narrative of this season. I am a little bit worried that it is, but I I really hope it isn't. Yeah. You understand. It's obviously understandable why that happened, especially being last impression. Yeah. There was so much spotlight on there. And that was when I really heard from people the most was right after that match. I got texts from all sorts of people who never, ever talked to me about tennis. And we're like, what happened with Serena? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> she yeah. lost to Roberta. It was a weird thing to have to explain for like, like the next few weeks. Sports happened? Like te- sports, I guess. You yeah. know what I mean? Like that's why they play because anything can happen on any given day. Right. So but the, so that moment for Serena was totally, totally there. And my, my uh, thankfulness first thing was on a similar vein. That's surprisingly, I was just going to be sort of thankful for the continuity we have in the sport with Serena and Venus together. And I guess Federer was in this group, too, at this point. Um, if you want to say Leighton Hewitt, I guess he's been hanging on for a while. He's wrapping up uh, soon. But, I mean, the, the amount of time we get to spend with these athletes at the top of the sport is pretty, pretty cool. I mean, like Serena and Venus have been around since the late 90s. Roger's been around since the early 2000s. Uh, you know, this sort of as much as you might want new blood at certain points with for f- casual fans, especially to get to have these players hang around the sport for so, so long. That's pretty cool. And for us to have gotten to spend this much time watching the Williams sisters in particular and seeing how they've evolved and how the, the world uh, has has learned to understand them and they've adjusted themselves to it and vice versa. And it's been this sort of growing process. I think it's been very cool, and I'm I'm thankful that people. This isn't this isn't a sport like uh like college sports where the people are around for a couple of years, or or like horse racing where the one <laughs> horse is around for one year and they're never seen again, and that's why it's stupid. One more one one of many reasons why it's stupid, but yeah, th- these are uh, these are I think pretty cool times to be able to stick with these players for so long, and hopefully. I have a feeling that 2016 will be a year of a lot of lot of players, maybe not any of the aforementioned, maybe yes, maybe no, uh, calling it quits uh, with Rio. A lot of players have mentioned Rio as a possible finish line for years and years now. Uh, so 2016 might be the end of some eras on whatever fronts. I don't know. I don't know any specifics outside of Roberta Vinci, who said it's going to be her <laughs> last year, which I don't think anyone was thinking of uh, really. But yeah, it's going to be a time, hopefully, that to sort of appreciate how long these phenomena did last. Cause it's been pretty cool. It has been really cool. And I mean, going with my other thing that I'm thankful for, which is kind of the flip side of that is, and I suppose this is pretty specific to the WTA. Cause obviously there's all these questions about the ATP and generation next and things like that. But, you know, I'm thankful for the younger generation of the WTA and specifically I'm just going to highlight three names, which are Garbina mm-hmm. Muguruza, uh, Belinda Bencich and Madison keys for this year. Um, throughout different segments of the season, they as a collective were a common 
theme and a common story uh, storyline and you know madison kicking things off you know at the, the beginning of the season at the australian open making semifinals and she's just a delightful person to talk to all the time and um so she makes my life a little bit easier um in a lot of ways so i was definitely thankful for her and then once benchich kind of came online uh you know over the summer and and everything that was really great like that week in toronto still is a mind-boggling week to me of mm-hmm. what she was able to pull off there um and then obviously garbina muguruza from all the way from from even the french open people forget that, that what she made the quarterfinals yeah yeah of the french open um from there through the end of the season i thought that that she was just a, a delight as well and and very interesting to talk to and so those three players for me I don't know. Like they made they 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 were a breath of fresh air for this season, and um, there's an incredible amount of talent within each and every one of them that makes me excited. You know, obviously this is the year that that uh, I went all in on the WTA taking yep. a job there, uh, and so much of that, I, you know, was based on thinking about you know what the tour was going to look like in five ten years and these are the players that I look at and I say, you know what, it'll be really fun to see how they pan out and to be with them along their, you know, alongside their journey. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so they've made my year very fun uh, from start to finish. So I'm very, very grateful for them. My next thing, I think it's something that I, I'm pretty sure we directly talked about at the end of last year, maybe even the end of the year before that, but definitely probably the end of last year. I'm very happy that tennis this year finally got its gift game together. Yes, that's on in my a, list too. That was in my a next big one. way. Yeah. In a big way. I, this was such a game changer. Uh, obviously, WTA reactions account uh, was the biggest one and been hugely uh, revolutionary in that. Or not revolutionary. That's probably too strong a word, but hugely uh, within tennis it pivotal. Yeah, and in, in terms of getting the sport viral or just the sort of vigilance of it that other sports have enjoyed for a long time. Tennis was way behind on this front, and the stuff that uh, Renee and Robin have done on WTA reactions in particular has been great. And other other people have picked up their their games too. It's not just been them; it's various other people at various times as well. Uh, and that's been something just really cool to have. <laughs> I was sent Courtney earlier before we started this this <laughs> random gif of of uh, Serena reacting to <laughs> or the 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 caption for it is like that moment when you remember that Marin Chilich won the U S open last year and Serena sitting there next to Marin Chilich has this look on her face and it's just so great. And we would never have had that saved there. And so obviously I'm people know in terms of like rights holding and YouTube, whatever stuff I'm generally for letting everything very laissez faire on that. And I like all the gifts and all the, all the ways to spread the sport. I think the sport is not so big to be, uh, it, it needs the gifts. It really does. It needs the sort of fan engagement that those things create. And the players I know love WTA reactions. Yes. They'd be thankful for it too. They love, they really, especially the women's, you know, they love that somebody, I I can tell that people care this much enough to make these gifts of these random Cornet matches in Istanbul when people are documenting what you did on changeover. And that, that's awesome that that happens. And so I'm entirely thankful for that. I absolutely 1000% echo that. And yes, it was Ben and I, 
at the end of the last year. Uh, and even I, I think on a, a post that I wrote on my personal blog about things that I wanted to see in, in 2015, and one of the big bullet points was was the gift game. That, it was such a niche to be filled. It, it really was. And, and it just didn't make sense that it wasn't filled and I didn't have the capability to do it. Um, and uh, even, you know, now within WTA, they're doing it uh, themselves a little bit more than they obviously were 12 months ago. But the biggest thing about WT Actions that I think is so ingenious about how they run that account, both Renee and Robin, is that it's done with love. No, oh, yeah. And that's something that I think sometimes within tennis, especially tennis Twitter, tennis social media, we kind of forget a little bit, which is that obviously there it's, it's really fun to snark on the sport and to snark on players. Trust me, I built my career on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously that's fun, but... But to find the ability to do it out of a place of appreciation, uh, because if you look at a lot of the gifts from WTA Reactions, if you take them out of the context of the uh, caption, they're potentially they maybe they embarrass a player, they they make a player look bad, they make and they show their worst bad. moments a lot of times. Exactly, but the way that they caption it changes everything, and it makes it really fun and it it, it kind of almost with every caption reminds you it's just tennis like you know it's just a fun sport that we enjoy that we wake up at odd hours to watch and to take in and that we don't really have to take it as seriously as sometimes people do and i think that wta reactions really strikes a perfect chord with it as ben was saying the, the players absolutely love it and uh, it, it's just made, even just me personally, my experience within tennis far more enjoyable than it was 12 months ago. But yeah, so that's WT Reactions. Um, one shout out that I will have, uh, that I will make uh, in terms of the things that I'm thankful for within tennis. Kim Sears. <laughs> Kim Be- Murray now. Kim Murray. Kim Murray. Because it's been 10 months, so it's easy to forget. But still, one of the defining moments of this season remains the Kim Sears shade towards Thomas Burdick at the Australian Open, her subsequent uh, parental advisory explicit lyrics, T-shirt, uh, and then they get married um, in uh, in May, and then now she's expecting. I just think that Kim Sears is the bee's knees, and I appreciate, especially once she wore the parental advisory explicit lyrics T-shirt, that there is a self-awareness, not just about her, but just about, again, the sport that like, come on, really? We're freaking out about, you know, this, this or that. Like, let's just have fun with it. And I think that before this year, because Kim Sears Murray um, is always a bit of a mystery. Because she yeah, do seen interview. but not her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, you know, we don't know much about her other than that her hair is flawless um, <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. But uh, I feel like this year we kind of got a little bit more of a glimpse into Kim and it was awesome. And my January, again, was amazing because of Kim's years. There you go. Um, my sort of last one I have, because we covered sort of bases that cut off a lot. I'm also just sort of grateful for the incredible access we have to tennis now in terms of all of the streaming and everything. This goes into the gifts a little bit, I guess, also. But just this sport is such a deep, deep sport with all the stuff that the ATP is doing with streaming challengers at every level, with all the stuff that WTA is doing with increasing uh, the number of courts being shown and doubles is getting shown more and more people who want that. I mean, 
I'm not sure how much it's getting watched, but people have said they want it, so it's out there now. I, I The amount of just growth the sport has had in terms of that in the last 15 years is so shocking. I mean, there used to be times when even big tournaments like Miami or something in the U.S. Indian on Wells. TV, yeah, you would see the quarterfinals on maybe, and that was it. Now people are upset if, you know, their favorite first round of, you know, I don't know, uh, if it's like Putin Seva versus uh, Gavrilova and it's not on TV court, people flip out. Like, this is so, so far from what it was really within the last 10 years. I think 2005, I'm sure it was not that great or even closer to closer to now than that. Uh, this progress is awesome. And I think it's very, very easy to take for granted the access we have now. It's easy to complain justifiably or whatever about you know not being able to find streams or things being blocked region blocked and all that stuff and that's all fine but just these are very just know how very first world problems these are compared to our tennis ancestors who had to wait for box scores to come in oh. the next day in the in the little classified section-ish part of the sports section that would show you you know the results from paris in the first round that's all you'd get so times are times are good for tennis fans for sure times are and uh i guess my last uh, thing that I'm thankful for is just uh, on the whole, the tennis community in, I think that I probably see this every year, but um, you know, yes, there are little pockets that I choose to ignore <laughs> and uh, don't Mute. interact muting. with. Yeah. Muting. Not, not just fans, but also, you know, fellow journalists or sure. people in the industry. I mean, we all have our favorites. We all have our people that are not our favorites that, you know, the emails pop up in your inbox and you're like, Nope. Um, at least I do. And, uh, but on the whole, again, you know, with every year that I'm in the sport and, and covering the sport and meeting more and more people. And there's so many people that are behind the scenes that are invisible that we within the sport, um, that cover the sport, uh, no, doesn't work without them, but they're not on Twitter or they can't tweet or whatever. Like the fans don't know who these people are. But, um, you know, I, I was just really reminded of it, particularly when I was in Asia the last seven weeks um, of just, you know, hanging out with Carol Bouchard, who I love, um, both in, in Wuhan and Beijing. Um, the, the transcript people, the, the transcriptionists who are amazing, Julie Rabe, uh, Jamie Morocco, like they're, they're fun. Linda Christensen, they make life a lot easier. The people who manage um, you know, these media rooms, whether it's Pete Holterman or Eleanor Preston, uh, mm -hmm. there's, there's just a, a bunch of people who just make this job really, really fun, who can crack a joke, who can deal with, you know, being crushed by numbers as it were with respect to, to, to qualifying and round robin scenarios in Singapore. It, 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 all of that, they do it and they, they have fun with it and they're incredibly nice, good people. Um, it's, it's just been really cool to, again, just like continually, uh, to get to know these people, to know them better. Reem Abulil, Nick McCarville, Ben Rothenberg. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, these are match for Lope. I mean, these are just people who made my entire Asia trip great throughout the time that I was traveling, especially when, once I was coming home, usually after a very long trip overseas, my go-to song that I listen to at the airport or um, on my way home on the plane or whatever, Simon and Garfunkel's Homeward Bound um, or California Love, but that's more when I land. Uh, and 
that was always my go-to kind of like going home song of like, okay, I'm going home. It's great. Like everything. But this year it kind of changed and it switched over to this song by shocker Slater Kenny uh, called no cities to love. And, and specifically the reason why is because there is a lyric in it. That's like, you know, there are no cities, no cities to love. Um, it's not the cities, it's the weather we love. And it's, it's kind of talking about a bunch of other things, but there's a line that's like, you know, it's the people we love. It's not the cities. It, and I think that there was a part of it that really struck a chord with me that as much as I travel and as much as I love these tournaments and these cities that we get to go to, which as we've said before within tennis is, is we're pretty lucky. We don't have to go to shitty cities and shitty towns. Uh, they're all pretty great. And, um, but it isn't the cities that compels me to travel. Like I, I'm not a sightseer. I don't go about, you've traveled with me, Ben, you know, this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the people, it's the opportunity when I get on the road, like, and I land being like, Oh, wow, you're here. That's great. And, and you're here and we get to catch up and, Oh, you're going to that tournament. I'm going to go to that tournament too. And it's really a people driven thing for me. And yeah. uh, so I'm really grateful for this sport that has allowed me to meet all these people from all around the world who who've completely enriched my life. And uh, you, of course, are included in that, Ben Rothenberg. Well, now I'm all verklempt, but uh, <laughs> but no, I, I totally agree with that. And just I when I describe sort of like as I'm sure you do all the time too, when I have to describe like okay, so what do you do for a living? It's a common question. I say it, and it's sort of a ridiculous answer to say, oh, I travel around writing about tennis and. <laughs> And it's, and people ask, oh, yes, obviously, as much as I travel, people hear how the numbers of weeks I've gone and stuff. And it's obviously that's daunting for people and they can't imagine doing it. But it's it's, you know, it's a traveling circus is a one easy way to describe it. The same people everywhere. But it's also, yeah, definitely a, a traveling community. And I don't want to say family because that's super corny, but, you know, people who who make who make it definitely feel like home on the road. Like I, I'm not going to feel like a fish out of water when I go to melbourne on the other side of the world in a couple months because yeah. i'll know all the people there it'll be like going sort of like back to camp or some other happy experience that uh that's that's definitely pretty cool and something we're pretty lucky to get to have yeah no i i always say that that weirdly when i'm at home because i'm the same as you like when i tell people how much i travel they're like how could you possibly travel that much and you know, doesn't it get exhausting? And I was like, no, but you have to understand that when I travel, that's my office. Yeah. Like those are my coworkers, you know, even if we're competitors or, you know, we're, we're adversarial or whatever, like even when it comes down to players or, you know, uh, fellow journalists, fellow communications people, things like that, like Agents, that's, whatever, yeah, yeah, that that's my world. So when I'm on the road, it's actually incredibly comfortable. Uh, when I'm at home working from my office, that's when it's like, kind of weirdly lonely and uh i you know that's probably why ben and i talk as much as we do <laughs> and text as much as we do because it's just like you have no so one lonely. So... <laughs> yeah uh yeah. <laughs> true but uh but yeah you know when i'm on the road it, it that's easy for me um and that is because not because of the road and not because of the cities and not because of the tourism or the food even it's because of the people. And um, I'm very grateful to be involved in a sport where, by and large, the people are pretty darn good. We're also pretty lucky to have this show where people are – we're very thankful also, lastly, I can say, for you guys for listening to us for 130-odd plus 99A through H, whatever it wound Crazy. up being, episodes uh, of the show. It's pretty nuts that us, you know – 
essentially recording our phone conversations and publishing for the world has managed to create this community around the show. And we are, we are super, super grateful for all of that for sure. And look forward to keeping it going in 2016. Most definitely. definitely. Yep. And with that, thank you guys for listening very much to this episode of no challenges remaining. If you want to follow along with us when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter uh, at NCR underscore tennis. If you want to subscribe to the show and get new episodes delivered to you automatically, you can do so on any podcast app and iTunes and whatever else RSS feed. And if you are on iTunes and want to leave us reviews there or on any other podcasting service that has, you know, reviews all, we always appreciate that. Uh, if you want to send us questions for upcoming shows, we're going to be doing a lot of questions, we hope, in the next few weeks as the season finally comes to an end uh, in our few off-season shows. We would love to have your questions either on Twitter or on email, uh, no challenges remaining at gmail.com. Courtney, with all those feelings already expressed, do you have anything left <laughs> for our rant rave segment? Sure. Um, I have two things. One thing is just very quick. Um, you, if you have Netflix, go watch Jessica Jones. It's amazing. It was great. I enjoyed it very, very much. And um, yeah, please do that. Uh, so that's you, one. You said, you said it was Veronica Marsish. It was. Or, well, what's the synopsis? I haven't. I I've heard praise for it, but have no idea what this show is. Okay, about. so Jessica Jones is actually a, a show on Netflix that just, I think was released last week. It yeah. is based off of a comic book by Marvel. And so it's part of the Marvel cinematic universe, which is part of Avengers and uh, daredevil, which was also on Netflix, which is great. Um, and it's, it's part of Marvel's whole thing. Guardians of the galaxy is part of the MCU as well, um, where they're basically creating this entire world of, uh, of, within a comic book. Um, but Jessica Jones is basically a character who has a superhuman ability. Um, she's, you know, kind of like all, not all powerful, like from a Superman perspective, but she has superhuman strength and she can kind of not fly, but she can jump, you know, tall leaps and things like that. But basically she's an anti-hero. She, the, 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 the show is she's a drunk. Um, she's incredibly sexually active, uh, but she has basically become a PI because, she tried to be a superhero and it failed miserably. Uh, there were incredibly um, tragic consequences to her superhero work. So she became a PI. And so there was, um, there's a lot of voiceover in the beginning. So, and the way that it shot, you're just kind of like, so is this what Veronica Mars would be? If like Veronica Mars had superhero powers. Um, but generally speaking, um, it's a show about female empowerment about, I mean, it's a very feminist show. In a lot of ways, it is to me the most more so than like, you know, Supergirl or Black Widow or Catwoman, mm -hmm. all of these other female superheroes. It is the most um, compelling female superhero the depiction that I've seen on, on screen. And what's interesting is like the villain, uh, the primary villain uh, whose name is Kilgrave is uh, basically he can control. He he has like this power of persuasion so mm. he can no matter who it is, he can just tell them what to do and they'll do it. And as you watch it happen on the show, it is the creepiest fucking thing ever. Like when you really think about it, cause you think about it passively, you're like, Oh, okay. So you have the power of persuasion. But like when you actually think about what that means, it's actually incredibly it's terrifying. Yeah it's, yeah. it's terrifying. 
So it's really interesting. Um, there's a lot of kind of think pieces that will come out over the course of it. I don't want to spoil it, but it's it's really good. And I, I binge watched it over two uh, two days over the weekend, and uh, I'm gonna rewatch it as well. Um, and it's it's funny. There's a lot of zingers. It's it's really well done, and um, every single female character in that show is like empowered. Like th- there's no real weakness to them, and and I thought that was pretty compelling. So yes, go watch Jessica Jones. It's interesting that you're saying. I mean, she's an antihero because there are so or antiheroine, I guess, because there are so few as many as much as like antihero TV is really in right now. So few of them on TV right now are female. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's a really undertapped thing. I mean, we talk about like you know if you want to talk about like Don Draper, I mean, you talked about her being like a drunk and whatever else you said, and it's like oh this sounds like Don Draper. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and promiscuous drunk. That's Don Draper. And she is that and other you know shows if it's like walter white or whatever other tony soprano whatever else it is yeah it's been a it's been a very anti-hero time in tv but it's also been and it's all and it's been a time where female characters are slowly getting more play but it's been pretty much all uh men on the anti-hero side so it's it's that's good and this goes back to i think a a few rants or raves ago you were talking about train wreck with amy Mm -hmm. schumer and it's a little bit like that, you know, I mean, Amy Schumer and Trainwreck, I mean, she is Seth Rogen, but a girl, like, you know, right. in terms of like, a, just poor decisions and kind of an asshole and all these sorts of things. And you need those characters, like yeah. you need that depiction of the female experience. And in the same way with Jessica Jones, you need to see this. And and I thought Kristen Ritter was surprisingly good. Um, she still might not be the person that I would cast at that role, but she's very, very good on it. She she definitely kills it. And David Tennant, uh, if you're British, you know who he is. Um, he's phenomenal as the villain Kilgrave. So it's it, it's really interesting. A lot of, I mean, there's trigger warnings. There's, there's a lot of, you know, um, storylines about rape, about um, PTSD, about survivor's guilt, you know, things like that. Um, sure. But it's, it, I think it handles it very, very well. To, to sort of go make layers of rants, you mentioned my other rant. So mention your about Grantland. When Grantland ended, they had like a list of like great podcast episodes from Grantland. And one of the ones I listened to was one that they had done, I think on, oh, I forget what the show is called, like Girls Hoodies. Girls and Hoodies, hoodies. yeah. Girls and Hoodies did, did, did an episode about female antiheroes, specifically Carrie Bradshaw. And if she was a female antihero. That is fascinating. Oh, Grantland, why are you no longer existing? That's an interesting argument. It was an interesting, it was like, I recommend this episode. Um, it's not my, not my rate, but it, it's a, it's a good, uh, interesting listen. I think Carrie, I come down more on the side that Carrie Bradshaw is just kind of an asshole. Yeah. She's just a villain. I don't, I don't see, because I don't see a redeeming quality. I mean, the antihero is still a hero, right? It, right? It's just, they go about it in a different way. Um, you know, I I would say that like like for example, like Lena Dunham in Girls is probably a little bit more Hannah mm-hmm. Horvath is a little bit more anti-hero than Carrie Bradshaw. I find just Carrie Bradshaw to be completely despicable from front to back. She's the worst. We, I don't know who ever read this worst. before, but she oh is my like, god! I know this is like a thing people when the show is on. I don't think people really grasped that at the time. I really don't think it was until like later, like some hindsight came in, people were like, whoa. She's terrible. She is terrible. Carrie Bonshaw is terrible. I, I can't even with her. But yes, yeah, so the whole concept of a female antihero, and to be fair, I mean, it's not like Jessica Jones like takes it to the Walter White, Don Draper, 
Like, she never does anything that's just like, oh, shit, like, I'm really struggling to like you as a human being right now. Mm-hmm. It never goes that dark. But she is, unfortunately, based off, and again, this goes back to what we were saying, um, as close to a female antihero as we have seen um, on TV, I think. Is she at least a better friend than Carrie Bradshaw? So much of a better friend. You don't even know. How could you not be? How could you not be? I mean, the episode where Carrie Bradshaw gets really pissed off at, um, who's the goody two-shoes? Charlotte. Charlotte. About when Charlotte doesn't offer her money because Carrie's, like, going through financial problems. and like, Because she bought too many shoes. Yeah, and they, they, bring, <laughs> they bring it, she brings it up, like, over brunch. And, like, Charlotte doesn't offer her, like, oh, let me help because Charlotte's obviously loaded. And Carrie confronts her. Like, at, I'm like, you are literally the worst human being on the planet. I cannot even deal with you. Oh, and the other time when Charlotte's at brunch and she just got engaged and Carrie got broken up with on a post-it note and it's like throwing her long pout over her like marriage obsessed friend who finally just got engaged and she's like covers up the ring with a post-it and says paper covers rock. It's the worst thing. I hate her so much. She is the worst. She is the worst. If you if- are friends with a Carrie Bradshaw, <laughs> stop being friends with a Carrie Bradshaw. If you are not friends with a Carrie Bradshaw, you're probably Carrie Bradshaw and you if need friends, to look into, inside If your yourself. friends tell you you're the Carrie, that's a problem. Such a problem. They also need to get more updated cultural references. Probably. I know, because like basically, <laughs> unless you're, unless the only one that you can get away with these days is saying like I'm a Miranda, like because Miranda was obviously the coolest of the four. It's Samantha as well. If somebody wants to say that they're Samantha, I will embrace that. And if someone says they're a Charlotte, like Charlotte had redeeming qualities. She did again. She was Gary. the nicest. She just got kicked like a puppy by those pe- those three. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Especially Carrie expensive shoe kicking horrible person i feel like we right. weirdly veered into rant that well we will continue ranting because my rant my specific one is gonna be shorter um it's about the steve jobs movie <laughs> which i hated so much i found i saw it i should say finally saw it, but it was disappearing from theaters quickly um i've been meaning to see it sort of i'm trying to see this is the time of year where i always watch movies because it's oscar season ramping up i'm very excited to see spotlight which i've only heard amazing things about uh so that'll be good Steve Jobs was not good. It was like Sorkin at his most insufferable. And I hated it. Was it super preachy? It was preachy, but also like just really. So I haven't seen, I think maybe this movie was meant for people who've already seen three or four other Steve Jobs movies. Fair enough. Um, And so there wasn't a whole lot of context for anything. It was like weirdly impressionistic. Weirdly, what it sort of came closest to for me, which I don't think it was meant to do, was that Bob Dylan not really by me. no, the, I'm not there. I'm not there, right? The I'm Joaquin, not there. No, the right, the Joaquin uh, Phoenix and Cape Blanchett. Yeah, Cape Blanchett. Yeah. Yeah, and all those other people. It was like that in that you just knew that none of the things in the Steve Jobs movie actually happened. It was about the way it was. Mm-hmm. It was built almost more like a play. It was structured in like three acts around three different product launches, and like all these people in his life come out of the woodwork before each of these product launches, like in the like minutes before it. Like, in the minute before, like, he's launching IMAX, Steve Wozniak confronts him about something. It's like, this did, this did not happen. Like, you just know this didn't happen. And it was very frustrating and weirdly uh, not satisfying. And it also focused entirely on, like, him being a crappy father. And for me, like, that's not relevant to Steve Jobs' legacy overall. Like, I think focusing on Steve Jobs' parenting abilities <laughs> is, like, focusing on, like, whether or not Barack Obama is, like, a good cook. <laughs> it's just like not central to the legacy whatsoever. He's a, he's a, he's a, you know, maybe that doesn't speak 
speaks to me being cold as a human to not care if he's a good parent or not, but I just didn't care. Well, his if contribution to the world was not that. And unless no. it's depicted in a way where, you know, his terribleness as a father, like fueled his creativity as a creator, then maybe, but if it's just like, Oh, he was a shit father. It's like, okay. Yeah. Oh, and if it, here's a, here's a newsflash, most fortune 500 CEOs are like, you know, like, if it had, if it had been based on unique. like a, if it had been, it felt like it had been based on a book like written by his daughter or something. That would make sense. That's the only way in which this lens of it would make sense to me if that was like the source material somehow. But it wasn't, and so I hated it. Yeah, I mean, if you want to see like that. a true, not the true. I mean, it's not like a great movie, but it is at least biographical, and at least it illustrates. Um, yeah, just uh, Steve Jobs and also Bill Gates, obviously, but the development of technology within Silicon Valley, like go and watch Pirates of Silicon Valley, which has Noah Wiley, I think, as Steve Jobs. And um, I want to say it's Anthony Michael Hall as Bill Gates, but I could be wrong on that. Um, but it's it was like a made for TV movie, but mm. it actually is like um, historical. Like, yeah. it's basically how, like, Steve Jobs fucked over Microsoft. Um, or, right. sorry, or the opposite. Microsoft fucked over Steve Jobs because of the mouse. Uh, whatever. But, uh, but yeah, like, that's actually compelling. And it's interesting. And you see, like, a character within that, right? And you it's learn some of the history. And you learn history, yeah. I felt, I learned nothing from this movie. And from like, a, from, like, a historical biopic, and I'm not somebody who's at all an Apple fanboy. I know. I, I keep trying I to convince Ben to buy, like, an Apple laptop, and he just won't do it. No, I'm gonna get a new laptop this before Australia probably. I don't and think it'll be an, be an Apple. Nope. I, I know it. I know it. But yeah, so I I just felt like it was not for me this movie, and it's probably not for you. And if you've seen it, there's the scene at the end on the parking lot where out of nowhere there's this ridiculous line of dialogue where it's 1998 and he suddenly predicts the iPod out of nowhere. Oh, it's just so stupid. Just go away. This movie needs to stop. Fair. And this show needs to stop to you probably this episode. But thank you guys for listening. We'll see you again next time. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye, guys. Gobble, gobble. Eat lots of stuffing. And if you need a stuffing recipe that is fail-proof, tweet me. I'll tell you. It's just mind-blowing. Mind-blowing stuffing. Yeah. It's a good promise. It's so good. Later, guys. Bye. I drank too much last night. Got bills to pay. My head just feels in pain. The bus and they'll be hell today. I'm late for work again. And even if I'm there, they'll all imply that I might not last the day. And then you call me, and it's not so bad. It's not so bad.